Please turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 1. So we begin a study in a, a new book of God's Word. Our passage tonight is Second Chronicles chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, which that is the entire chapter that is before us. You'll find this on page 454 if you're using your pew Bible. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in all Israel, the heads of fathers' houses. And Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tent of the meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the assembly sought it out. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. And that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, you have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father now be fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours which is so great? God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart and you have not asked possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you and have not even asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor such as none of the kings had who were before you and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon from before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kui, and the king's traders would buy them from Kui for a price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Likewise, through them, these were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for the study of a new book together as a church. For some of us, it may be unfamiliar. For others, it may be very precious already, but it's your word, Lord. We thank you for it. We pray that you, not that we would make your word come alive, but that your word would make us come alive. And as is the heart of the chronicler, may we seek after you earnestly in the hope of your grace, which will surely be ours. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Croesus, the king of Lydia, provides a historical example of what happens if one has wealth but not wisdom. Since his capital city of Sardis sat beside a river, which, by the way, happened to flow with gold, then he was the wealthiest king of the 6th century BC. It wasn't that hard when you have a river flowing with gold right next to your capital city. But The time came when the Persian conqueror Cyrus the Great drew near with his army and Lydia's king did not know what to do. So he went to the oracle at Delphi and he sought an answer. And here's what he was told. If you cross the river Halas, you will destroy a great empire. Well, he took that as a message of his future victory. So he rode out with his army to face great Cyrus and it was after his soldiers had all been either slain or scattered that he realized that his was the great empire that would be lost if he crossed the river Halas. So much for wealth without wisdom. 
Well, Second Chronicles begins with a young king who would be famed for his earthly wealth above all others, but even more for his heavenly wisdom. And he assumed the reins of kingship at a critical juncture after the death of his father, King David. And Solomon revealed that his heart was turned to the Lord. His prayer for wisdom in this chapter not only provides a vital lesson in leadership, but it sets an example for Christians to seek after the spiritual blessings rather than merely earthly ones. One commentator says the beginning of Solomon's reign calls us to focus precisely where Solomon focused on receiving wisdom from God so we will not just spend a lifetime accumulating stuff but will please the Lord in all that we do. Well, the Lord's answer to Solomon's prayer reminds us of the promise found in the New Testament in James 1 verse 5. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generally to all without reproach and it will be given. Well, the book of Chronicles is the last of the great historical records of the Old Testament, telling the story of Israel from the time of King David all the way through the kingdom of Judah and then into the Babylonian exile until the decree of Cyrus, that same Cyrus, to restore the exiled people to their promised land. First Chronicles tells the story of Israel in the days of King David. Second Chronicles begins with the reign of his son Solomon and continues through the remaining rulers of Judah. Now you may wonder, why are we not doing First Chronicles? Well, the answer is, if you've been here a while, it wasn't that long ago that I spent several years in the evening preaching the life of David in First and Second Samuel. I'd long been thinking that we should pick up at some point. And start with Solomon, go all the way through the great and exciting record, so little known to the people of God. I've been excited for us to study Second Chronicles, and that's why I'm leaving First Chronicles for someone else. Well, given its conclusion during the Restoration Era with the decree of Cyrus, the author of Chronicles has sometimes been identified, maybe primarily, as Ezra, the great priest who led Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah. Let me say, I don't think that's likely to be true, however. And the reason for that is if you read the book of Ezra, you see that he is rather extensively focused on the problem of God's people intermarrying with unbelievers and all that that involves. And and yet the writer of Chronicles, telling the story of Solomon, makes no mention of his industrial-scale violation of that very principle. I, I suppose it's possible that it's Ezra, but it does not seem likely that Ezra would have told the story of Solomon in this way. Now for that reason, others have dated Chronicles to the period of the initial restoration in the time of the prince Zerubbabel and of the priest Joshua, the time of the prophet Zechariah, particularly since Chronicles, as we will see, deals very extensively with the building of Solomon's temple And it was the calling of Zerubbabel and his era to rebuild the temple of Solomon. Those themes seem to go together. The problem is that in 1 Chronicles 3, 18-24, in the genealogy of the line of David, that genealogy extends three generations after Zerubbabel. So that seems to exclude an earlier date, around 538 B.C., Well, therefore, since Zerubbabel led the restoration of Jerusalem in 538 B.C. and Ezra arrived in Jerusalem around 458 B.C., it's an 80-year gap, we should probably date Chronicles somewhere between them. I would argue the early to mid-5th century B.C., let's say uh, 470 B.C., or something like that is the most likely dating for the book of Chronicles. Now, Chronicles, like Samuel and Kings, is a historical book, primarily. And it details the events of Israel and then the kingdom of Judah over their many centuries. And he draws very extensively, you can see where he does it, he's drawing on the previously published material in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, but he also refers to various royal annals that are no longer available to us. He was a historian, and so he's telling that story, and yet he was a particular kind of historian, namely a theological one. 
He has an agenda. It's a theological agenda, and it's going to come through in the details that he, see, he, he, determine, he, he decides to highlight and those he does not highlight. You will find that Chronicles is quite a bit different from the record of Samuel and Kings. Why? Because he has a different theological agenda, not one at odds with it, but particular things he wants to highlight. Uh, Topics like faith, worship, repentance, prayer receive emphasis not only in what stories are told, but the way they're told, the little comments he makes. That's how the Old Testament history tells its theology. Those little comments telling you, inspired by the Holy Spirit, how we should think about it. It is a theological history. Now, I think it's probably best to contrast Chronicles with the books of Kings, First and Second Kings, and we can see the real differences between the books. And that difference is seen where they end. Second Kings ends that great account of Israel with Jehoiakim, the last king prior to the exile, being led into chains and then actually allowed to eat at the table of Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian exile. So King ends with the, ex- the destruction of Jerusalem, the tearing down, the burning of the temple, Jehoiakim being taken to Babylon, and, and that begins the exile. Now, the purpose of kings, then, is to ask the question, how did this happen? What went wrong? How, how did the covenant people of God end up in chains? How did God's great holy city, where his own name was found, how was it destroyed? Well, the answer is seen in the sin and idolatry. You, you, there you have Ahab and Jezebel, and the, the trials of Elijah, First and Second Kings, is great, but it answers the question, what went wrong that caused this judgment. Chronicles, as I've said, ends much later. It actually ends when the decree of Cyrus, much later than Nebuchadnezzar, is made that the city of Jerusalem should be restored. Now, in keeping with that ending, Chronicles propagates a message of hope, a theology of hope, the hope of God's grace if we will only learn our lessons, be faithful to the Lord, repent of our sins, it, it probably in the classic language of the chronicler, if we will seek him with all our hearts. That's the way he speaks in this book. And if we will seek him, we will find him, and God's grace will be there. Here, here the people were. Jerusalem's been destroyed. The, the, its buildings are scattered. It's rubble. It, it, Is this generation able to experience God's favor? The chronicler says, we certainly can, if we will seek the Lord with all our heart. That's the message of First and Second Chronicles. It's a historical book. It's a theological book. It's also a very pastoral document. I've already uh, really insinuated that. He, has a, he wants the people to have a zealous restoration of their faith, their expectation of the Lord, to seek the Lord, to call upon him in humble prayer. We'll see prayers being powerfully answered here. He wants us to repent by, in, in a way that knows that God has mercy. God will return if we will seek him. Richard Pratt writes, for this reason, many of the major themes of Chronicles have rather direct correlations with the theology of the New Testament. Things like the heart, humility, seeking God, faithfulness, repentance. And that's why I think with some insight, the ancient compilers of the Old Testament actually placed Chronicles last in their canon. In our English Bibles, it's, it's at the end of the, of the histories. Uh, it's not even at the end of that. You have Esther and, and, and so on after that. But in the Hebrew Bible that Jesus used, then of that time, the Old Testament ended with the book of Chronicles. Now that is insightful because perhaps above all its message points so directly to a hope that we will be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Well, First Chronicles presents the life of David as the ideal king who brought blessings from God and that's part of the message of Chronicles, the, the, the value of godly leaders who seek the Lord from their heart. And as we start Second Chronicles, we are seeing the transition from David to Solomon in a way that reinforces that same principle. We see it in the opening verses of Second Chronicle. Now, I think it's worthwhile to point out that originally there was one book of Chronicles rather than two. That's why it's not uncommon to speak of Chronicles, just as we might rightly speak of the book, the book of Kings, the book of Samuel. Originally, and in the Hebrew, it is on a single scroll. There is no 
first and second originally. So how did we get first and second? Well, we got it when the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's actually, you use a lot more space to write Greek. Hebrew, not having vowels, is a very economical language. You can fit a lot more onto a scroll. Not so Greek. And so you literally could not fit it on scrolls when it was translated into Greek. It had to be divided, and it was divided at the place where it is. Rather uh, wisely, uh, naturally, at the divide between David's long account and Solomon. And yet that division may obscure the fact that in the chronicler's mind, the, the, role, the reigns of David and Solomon were more of a united whole, whole than they should be thought of as different reigns. They both formed a unity in which faithful kingship provided bounty to the nation. David, Solomon is David's successor and he's going to carry on the principles laid down by his father. He's actually going to complete the work that First Chronicles show that David devoted his last years to preparing, namely the building of the temple on Mount Zion. Like David, Solomon is a man after God's own heart. And the chronicler's concern for inward piety is seen in this chapter. It very much echoes the words of 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He is a new David. Well, our passage begins with Solomon establishing himself as king. And this leaves out the rather sordid episode where his brother Adonijah sought to usurp the throne along with some of David's old associates. First Kings 1 tells that story. Solomon's mother Bathsheba intervened. She was helped by Zadok, the faithful high priest. The rebellion was put down. And that very day Solomon was paraded through Israel, through Jerusalem, riding on the royal mules, all found in First Kings. Chronicles merely says that he established his kingdom kingdom and what's noted here is what is most important the lord his god was with him that's the most important thing in the chronicler's eyes and made him exceedingly great verse one david himself had prayed for the lord to be with his son that was seen in first chronicles 22 7 to 10 uh, 22 11 that is uh, and that he might succeed in building the house of the Lord his God as he has spoken concerning you. David prayed. The very things we're going to see about Solomon in this chapter are things that David explicitly prayed for him in chapter 22 of First Chronicles. And so Solomon is to David, more or less, more in fact, uh, of what Joshua was to Moses. And so the Lord's faithfulness to the former would be extended to the latter who really was carrying on his faith and completing his work. Now, befitting the example of his father, Solomon's first public act as king was to lead the people, and we we're particularly told of all the chief officials, in a public act of worship to the Lord. This is a very promising beginning. First thing we're told that he did is he led the people in public worship. Verses 2 and 3, Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and hundreds, to the judges, to all the leaders in Israel, all the heads of the fathers' houses. And Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was in Gibeon for the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. What a wonderful thing it is to see this national leader making public worship his first priority. Now, you may be thinking that Gibeon is a surprising location for this, since after all, if you know Samuel and First Chronicles, that the Ark of the Covenant is not at Gibeon. It is back in Jerusalem. In fact, verse 4 gives an explanatory note about this. And he points out that during David's reign, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle were separated. The, the tabernacle all this time had been at Gibeon, that ancient sacred site. Now behind that story you may know is the capture of the Ark of the Covenant by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 5. Many years later, David recovered that most sacred object and he brought it to his capital city, Jerusalem, and he made a provisional tabernacle as it were a tent for it there now there are many who would argue that in worshiping on a high place it's good that Solomon wanted to worship 
But the high place was not the place to go, particularly in the book of Kings. The high places are specifically forbidden because that's where all the, 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 the various miscellaneous worship was taking place, so much of which was unbiblical and even idolatrous. You're not to worship on the high places. Well, here he is at Gibeon, which is actually called in the text the high place. Why here? Well, the answer is that this particular place was made legitimate. Because the tabernacle was there, that is the original tabernacle was there, so also was the bronze altar constructed in the time of Moses for sacrifices, we're told. It's the very one Bezalel had made. We're going to connect with Bezalel a little later in the book. But this is the actual bronze altar where these sacrifices were to be made. In fact, Solomon's showing, showing a lot of insight because he really should not offer his sacrifices at the Ark of the Covenant. It was the high priest who presented sacrifices at the Ark of the Covenant. And then only on the Day of the Atonement, those were the blood sacrifices for the atonement of sin. But when the king was coming to give burnt offerings as, as a consecration to the Lord, the right place, according to the Bible, for him to do it was at the bronze altar, which happened to be at Gibeon. Andrew Hill writes, the pilgrimage to Gibeon then is a return to first things for Solomon. This sacred spot and the bronze altar connected him to the faith of Moses and the Exodus, the very thing we would like to see him do. Well, he establishes the priority of worship and he comes to the ancient tabernacle to meet with the Lord, concluding, verse 6 says, by offering lavish uh, burnt offerings of sacrifice. Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Now this was worship befitting a king. This is really the first thing, our first point, is that he offers worship befitting a king as he gives homage to the true and living God. Uh, these sacrifices should be distinguished from the atoning sacrifices offered by the priest. That's not what's going on here. These are offerings of consecration. What he's doing is he's consecrating himself wholeheartedly to the Lord at the beginning of his reign for worship and service. And he possessed great flocks. You say a thousand sacrifices. Isn't that a little much? Not when you're Solomon. Not when you have received vast numbers of, of, of animals and flocks that came from God by means of your father. David, and so he's offering as a reflection of the work and the blessings that God has done in his life. What we think of Jesus' teaching, very much exemplified here by Solomon. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. If we find that God has done much in us, well, we should desire to do much for him. And the lavish abundance of his offering expresses a wholehearted commitment to the Lord. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 3, a parallel account of this, this whole episode is pictured as a private act of worship on Solomon's part, which it was. But Chronicles emphasizes it as primarily a public act. Michael Wilcock writes, he's here not as an individual person only, but as a responsible leader. Well, the new king was setting an example, and he's giving instruction about the ethos of this reign that will begin you know, wise leaders will engage in symbolic acts to, to, just, to demonstrate what they're going to be all about, what their, their reign, as it were, their administration is going to emphasize. We can hardly imagine a better way to, to a, better, a better theme to emphasize than that this rule that I've been entrusted with is going to be faithful to the Lord. It's going to be consecrated to his glory, to his service, to his blessing. That's what he does here. Moreover, I think probably as well, uh, Solomon's action here is a reflection of the primary calling on his life. We're going to see it in Second Chronicle. That is to build and establish the temple of the Lord on Mount Zion. And, and when he does that, then this tabernacle and all of its the implements, the, the table of showbread, the 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 the, the the, the altar of incense, the, the menorah lampstand, and the bronze altar, then they will be reunited in Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant. When the temple is established, he seems now to be preparing the people 
to be thinking about what is going to come. He wants to encourage the ordinary people of future generations that they too will receive a response from God if they will seek him through the temple just as he has done at the tabernacle. Now the key statement in this opening scene that shows worship befitting a king is found in verse 5. I mentioned that the little comments the historians will make tell you the message they have. And here's the key comment. Solomon and his assembly sought it out. They sought it out. The Chronicles was written, as I've said, to celebrate the heart seeking after God. And, and this very attitude is, is exemplified in his worship. In Second Chronicles 15, his descendant, King Asa, will be told these words, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. And here is Solomon. He is seeking it out. And he not only sought the Lord, but he also knew where to find him. How does Solomon know where to, where's the right place to be? What's the right thing to do? He did it by consulting the Holy Scriptures. We too will seek the Lord and we will find him if we will open our minds and hearts through the study of his saving word. As I read these exhortations, I think of many others in the Bible who came seeking. Perhaps among my favorite are the Greeks of John chapter 12. They came to, to Andrew, the disciple, or to Philip the disciple, and they said these words, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus saw that really as the culmination of his ministry. He actually responds unusually, you would think, with these words that the now is the hour of glory, referring to his coming death on the cross. Well, Jesus offered himself a sacrifice more valuable than Solomon's thousand offerings in order to draw people to himself people who would be redeemed through his blood. Jesus said God the Father is seeking such people to worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4.23. One of the greatest encouragements for us to seek after the Lord is to realize that really it's the Lord who's been seeking us. Jesus is the Savior of whom it was written, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost, Luke 19.10. It was worship befitting a king who was seeking the Lord. Now the opening sequence then begins with worship, but then continues to the wisdom that is sought by one who is called to be king. First we have worship befitting a king, and then we have the wisdom needed by the king. We see this episode advance when God appears to Solomon that night. We're actually told in 1 Kings 3 that it was in the, in the form of a dream. And here's what the Lord said, verse 7, I ask what I shall give you. Now imagine being told that by God. Ask what I shall give you. So far as his words were concerned, the Lord was inviting Solomon to ask for anything, whatever it was he desired. And such uh, an offer, I think, surely must be daunting if we will think about it events would show by the way that the lord meant it he's going to do spectacular things for solomon there's really not restrictions on this whenever god says ask of me of course it's limited by his will but here this is a bold claim made to solomon ask of me what you will desire and so what would he ask? Will he ask to become fabulously rich? Will he ask for his enemies defeated? You know, the Lord is willing to do, in fact, the Lord does all those things. So those are prayers the Lord would have granted him. It's clear that the Lord would give him whatever he asks. So here's the question, what should he ask for? I think we should realize that Jesus made virtually the same offer to us. The same offer that God made to Solomon. Consider Matthew 7, verse 7 Ask, Jesus said, and it will be given to you. John fifteen seven repeats the offer, although admittedly it's qualified there by the context of abiding in God's word. If you abide in my word, as you abide in my word, he says the same thing. Ask and it will be given to you. The Lord will give what you ask. Now the clear emphasis is on the infinite possibilities that are opened to us by access to the sovereign, omnipotent Lord of all the heavens and the earth. Uh, Leslie Allen 
writes of an elderly, elderly man who lived in the most destitute poverty. And after he died, it was discovered that he had enough money that he could have wallpapered his house with $100 bills. And yet he lived like a pauper. Well, the Christian counterpart is the believer who fails to ask great things of God in prayer. For so many, our spiritual poverty reflects the situation of James 4, verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, the real issue here is not whether or not God was able or willing to do what Solomon asked, but rather the question is, what will he ask for? And Matthew Henry observes that when the Lord throws open the door to our requests in prayer, he is testing our hearts. And the answers that we give will reveal the character of our spirits. Matthew Henry writes, God bade him ask what he would that he might try him. How he stood affected, how he might discover what was in his heart. Men's character appear in their choices and desires. I think it needs to be said that God answers our prayer in accordance with his wisdom and will, often in his own timing. We really don't get to override his sovereignty by by making prayers. But the question here is, what would he ask? What he asks for is wisdom. And as he does so, he shows that he has already received a pretty good deal of what he asked for. He asked for wisdom, and he expresses in his reply a desire to fulfill the calling that God has laid upon his life. He wants to establish his kingdom. He wants to do the work of building the temple of the Lord. And it's because of that that he asks for wisdom. Look at verse 8. His, his very first words in prayer are filled with praise. You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. You know, since we are praying to God, it is always ideal to approach God with praise, with adoration, with thanksgiving. I think it's particularly important with our more organized prayer. Sometimes our prayers are going to cut to the chase for for reasons that are necessary. But when we come to the Lord in prayer, let's not forget who we're approaching. We should give him praise and adoration. We should glorify him. The great prayers of the Bible show this. We should thank him for the things he has already done. The God who offers prayer to Solomon and also to us is a God who has already shown covenant faithfulness. He has already earned his glory. And so praise sets the context in which Solomon will make his requests. Well, the first request follows in verse 9 as he prays. Remarkably, his first prayer is that God's word would be fulfilled. Isn't that wonderful? God appears to him at such a crucial time in his life, says, ask what you wish. In his first actual request, I wish for your word to be fulfilled. Remember Jesus' Lord's prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's what he's doing. My, My chief prayer request is that your will would be done. Now there's wisdom. Let your word be fulfilled, he says. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust on the earth. Verse 9. Now the Lord had promised, that's what he's referring to, he had promised an eternal throne to the offspring of royal David. 2 Samuel 7, 16. That's a promise that would be fulfilled and it would ultimately be fulfilled in the saving eternal reign of Jesus Christ, the, 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 the king on the throne of the house of David. And God's covenant promise to David also stipulated that his son would build a house for God's name. David's son, God had promised. Notice he's praying for what God has promised. This is wisdom and prayer. Lord, I pray for your, I I praise you. I want to adore you. I pray that your will would be done. I pray for the things that you have told me to pray for. I pray for the things you've promised, which in this case is the establishment of his kingdom and that he shall build a house for my name. Solomon says, let me do that work. Let me do the work you've called me to do and fulfill your promises in my life. Now, keeping in mind his high calling as the heir to the throne of David and also his utter dependence on God's blessing, Solomon then makes his primary, really it's the the request he's really making now, and it is an appeal for wisdom. 2 Chronicles 1.10, give me now wisdom 
and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours which is so great? Now the record of this same prayer in 1 Kings 3, 7-8 particularly emphasizes his humility. His keen awareness of his personal limitations. This is what spurred him to ask for wisdom. There he says this, I am but a little child. I do not know how to come in and go, go out and come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people. Too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Isn't that instructive? Solomon prayed for wisdom because he had already been made humble. He had a humble estimation of his ability. Now, at this time, he would have been around 20 years old, so his experience was rather limited. Moreover, he says, the sheer size and the nature of the demands of the nation of Israel, that the covenant people, would make it extremely difficult to lead well. He needed God to help him and fortify him and equip him if he was going to be faithful and to rule with justice. And God had already promised to be with him. And so the next most essential blessing was the wisdom to discern correctly, wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. Uh, The going out and coming in is a metaphor for all the circumstances I'm going to face. Give me wisdom and knowledge for this. Now Solomon might have come to realize this. You say, how did he get to be so wise? He's asking for wisdom and he's showing wisdom in doing so. Where did he get this spiritual awareness? You know, the answer is he got it from his father. Here's a message for Christian parents. It turns out that in 1 Chronicles 22:12, David prays for Solomon for when he become kings. And guess what David prays for? He prays that Solomon will pray that God will make him wise. How many people who've done much for the Lord had their inspiration and their piety formed at the kitchen table, in the, in, in the family altar, the conversations, the prayers with parents or other spiritual mentors? David prayed, may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. He learned his need from wisdom through the prayers of his father. He actually also learned the definition of wisdom. David defines it as the keeping of God's word. Solomon seems to have shared that view. He writes in Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Cyril Barber is going to expand the definition that of the wisdom that Solomon asked for. I think he rightly says it covers the whole spectrum of human knowledge, including matters of basic morality, a sagacious approach to secular affairs, a moral sensitivity, but above all, an understanding of the ways of the Lord. A more valuable blessing than this wisdom is hard to imagine. Well, the Lord was pleased with Solomon's request, and it shows that he is pleased. When we pray, when we make the priority of our prayers, the godly character and the spiritual resources that we might faithfully perform the callings he's laid upon our lives. That's the analogy in our prayer lives. You're not the king of Israel, I don't think. In fact, I know you're not. But you have other callings. And God will be pleased when you say, oh, Lord, give me the faith that I need. Give me the humility. Give me the godliness. Give me the love. Give me the patience I'm going to need. Gordon McConville writes, Solomon sees the nature of the task and the need for God's special enabling. And he has the moral moral stature to make this enabling to fulfill his calling, his primary request of God. Christian mothers and fathers will please the Lord when they say, oh Lord, give me godliness. I took vows in the baptism of this child to set a godly example. Who am I to do that? Oh, oh, would you do it in my life, Lord? Give me godliness. Give me patience. Give me love. Yes, give me wisdom that I would raise my children well in the Lord. That's a prayer that pleases the Lord. Spouses will will please the Lord when they pray to be faithful to their vows and to more and more live up to the biblical idea of mutual ministry in marriage. We can think of many, many other scenarios. I would add that ministers please the Lord when they pray for God's gifting, but then his faithfulness, faithfulness in the teaching of his word. 
Well, to this difficult focus, the Lord adds that there's a special delight in that Solomon prayed for spiritual rather than earthly riches. That's the comment he made. He's a true son of David after all. Uh, Of course, Jesus taught a similar priority to us, one that will make us equally pleasing to God. Matthew 6.33, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do our prayers reflect that priority? Well, here's what the Lord said to Solomon, because this was in your heart, verse 11, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you. You have not even asked for long life, but you have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge, therefore, are granted to you. Here's a request that's immediately granted. The wisdom that is sought is given. Now, again, Jesus specified that when we pray in the Father's will, according to scriptures, according to the priorities and values of scripture, we can be certain he's going to enter it, but it's going to be in a way and timing of his choosing. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. John 16, 25. But you see, when we know what delights him in prayer, that gives us not only the, 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 the understanding of what we should be asking for, but also boldness and expectancy when we do so. I've always been inspired by that great missionary hero, William Carey, whose motto, this was the motto of that great missionary movement, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. That's what should be in our heart. Oh, Lord, enlarge my vision of a life lived unto you and what I might do, but oh, also give me more and more confidence that you are able to give what is asked. You know someone else who really believed that? It was the Apostle Paul. And he extolled God in Ephesians 3.20 as him who was able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us. Well, when Jesus urged us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he actually didn't stop there. He went on and said, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. Now, the, these things were the lesser priorities, namely earthly things, earthly provisions that are needed for our lives. And, and notice that God is happy to provide them. God is happy to provide what we need, especially when it is to spiritually minded believers. Now, this is not to say that if you trust the Lord, you're going to have instant riches. In fact, it's the exact opposite. In fact, what it will say is you really, you'll become increasingly indifferent to those things. As you need them, you may have them, you may not. They won't even be your priority. But he says, these things also will be given to you. And that is exactly what the Lord does as he continues to answer Solomon's prayer. We've talked about the worship that's befitting a king. The wisdom that's needed by the king. Well, thirdly now, we see the wealth that is provided to a king. Verse 12, I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you had, and none after you will have the like. By the way, this shows that the only true limitation on God's answer to our prayers, along with his own sovereign purpose, is our worthiness to be entrusted with worldly goods, particularly when we show a spiritual priority for our lives. Well, the final section of 1 Chronicles 1 shows this wealth that God provided to Solomon for the sake of his kingdom. And the list of riches is preceded in verse 13 by the renewed confidence as he hears God's answer to prayer. He goes back fortified in faith. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon from before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem and he reigned over Israel. Well, we are mistaken as we consider these final verses and all the wealth they involved. If we think it was really just for Solomon's enjoyment, it's clear that's not the case. In fact, we can see specific purposes that are given to him with the priority that God was resourcing his kingdom activity. He was a king. He needed these things for his kingship. And then secondly, that he would accomplish the task that had been specifically given to him, namely the building of God's temple. Now, there's three categories of the blessings. The first is military resources. 
Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. Verse 12. Well, a wise king would make provision for the defense and security of his people. Solomon's very vigorous in pursuing this path. Now, we might complain about this. Kings does complain that he is not keeping the restriction of Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, that he's not to rely on excessive modern military uh, weaponry. That was not to be their edge in battle. Chariots and large mounted forces are actually prohibited in Deuteronomy because they're to trust the Lord in battle. Interestingly, the chronicler, this is typical of the chronicler, That's not where he puts his emphasis. His point simply is that God makes provision that enable him to prepare his armed forces. By the way, archaeologists have in fact found large royal stables in all the ancient fortified sites that have been assigned to the very era of Solomon's reign. God gave him military resources for the defense of the nation. Secondly, we're told in verse 15 of material prosperity. And the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. Now, sycamore is not that great a wood for building. And there's a lot of it in Israel, in the lower lands. What you really want is a cedar. That's up on the highlands. It's not really in Israel. It's more towards Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon feature so often in the Old Testament. Now, we see that nonetheless, there's, it's, there's so much cedar. These resources are so abundant. The silver and gold, and this is hyperbole, but it makes a point. It's like stone. They're building materials now. Gold is not usually thought of as a prime building material. Cedars as abundant as common wood. Well, of course, we remember that the Lord is, first of all, Solomon had prayed for the well-being of the nation. This wealth is not merely for his aggrandizement. It's that the people would be blessed with the abundance they need. But what should particularly strike us is that these particular resources, gold, silver, and cedar, will be primary materials for constructing the temple of the Lord that begins, that construction begins in chapter 2. You go, wow, wouldn't it be great to build with gold? Only if you're building Solomon's temple on Mount Zion. And that's why he has this abundance, so that he might do the work that the Lord has given him to do. You know, the Bible frequently warns us that material wealth can ruin us. We can become like foolish King Croesus that I began the sermon with tonight. And it was his wealth that blinded him. And certainly uh, wealth can have that effect, but it need not. And here we see an example where that is not the case. Particularly we see here when the primary purpose of accumulating wealth is that we would do good to others. If that's what we're, you know, what we're daydreaming about is often so significant. And what we're really thinking about is the way we can use this to bless people and to do good. And particularly when we can say we can, we want to resource the work of God's kingdom, when that's our attitude, not only will the Lord often provide resources, but they will be a blessing and not a curse. We can extend this principle and more generally Christian parents who seek resources to educate their children faithfully or who are looking for funds for a missions trip. For those who simply seek to be faithful in their tithing to the church, they will often find a supernatural provision in which the Lord grants that which is needed in order that we may do his will. The resources to fulfill our calling. Well, the final verses speak of his successful and skillful international trade, primarily here in horses and chariots. His import of horses was from Egypt and Kui. The king's traders would buy them from Kui for a price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, a horse for 150. He's trading well. And, of course, he sits, Israel sits on the north-south trade route between Egypt and all of those lands and Mesopotamia and Syria and all those lands. And he is sagacious. He knows how to handle that. He knows how to make good of that. And he's, he's dealing in these things. He's buy, I assure you, Solomon is buying low. You know, that's, that, that's what you're trying to do. Buy low and sell high. Not, by the way, for everyone who buys low and sells high, there is someone else who is 
buying high and selling low. And his wisdom is such that he is able to profit from this. These were exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. You see, he's not only making a profit from this, he's actually positively influencing international relations around him. Well, again, not many readers of Second Chronicles today have these responsibilities. The responsibility of a king or a high government official. But we can all possess wisdom like Solomon's if we will seek the knowledge of God in his word. It's true that biblical wisdom will often lead to earthly prosperity, though that is not always the Lord's will. But wisdom will typically, will consistently give us the ability to use well whatever it is that the Lord is, is, is desirous to provide to us, that we would use them for the best purposes. That is actually something more valuable than the possession of abundance. Moreover, if we really want to be wise in the ways of the Lord, both for ourselves and those under our care, for our families and our church, the priority that Solomon shows on spiritual blessings will pay their greatest dividend in leading us to the saving kingdom of God's true son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew twelve forty two commends Jesus by reminding us that something greater than Solomon is here. See, not only is Jesus the source of our highest wisdom in his saving death for the forgiveness of our sins, but Colossians 2 verse 3 says that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Solomon later reflected on his experience when he wrote in Proverbs eight eleven, wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you desire cannot compare with her. Jesus spoke in even higher wisdom when he invited sinners to follow him into eternal life. Here was his wisdom saying, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of Solomon. And we thank you that it points us to him who is supremely wise your son, the Lord Jesus. I do pray that we would profit from the message of this book, that we would seek after you with our heart because we trust you, because you have been seeking after us. Oh, Lord, give us like Solomon a desire that we would, that we, above all other things, that we would do the work you've given us, that we would consecrate our lives unto you, that we would become wise in the things of this world, laying them as crowns at the feet of the Lord Jesus. We know that you will not fail to provide for us according to our need. May you have glory in your Son, your true and greater Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.